It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. It's the Media Buzz Meter with Howard Kurtz. Hey, guess who John Stewart is talking about on his video series, The Problem with John Stewart? Or if you prefer, The Problem with John Stewart. All depends on where the comma emphasis is, you see. He's talking about Hunter Biden, unlike a lot of left leaning types. And Stewart, by the way, got a lot of street cred for the way that he fought for and beat the system in getting that bill through. I believe it wouldn't have passed without him uh, to aid veterans who've been exposed to toxic burn pits and other things like that. John Stewart says, Hunter Biden being on the board of Burisma, to me, that's corruption straight up, off the bat. He went on to say that it'd be a long way to prove that Joe Biden was involved or got any money, but Hunter Biden, everybody knows that. I mean, whether it's legal corruption remains to be seen in federal investigation or whether it's just moral corruption. But why else would this company hire Hunter Biden? You know, special expertise in energy. Okay, so there is an item on Mediaite about ratings and the 9 p.m. Eastern hour on cable news, where you have now two hosts that have settled in, CNN, MSNBC, Sean Hannity, of course, remaining uh, steady at Fox. And, you know, obviously ratings are part of the game. So Jake Tapper is temporarily doing the 9 p.m. hour through the election, and then it will be seen whether or not he would permanently move to that slot or not, or he may not want to for family or other reasons. And the, the, what's pointed out here is that from his debut on October 11th uh, until last week, October 18th, so it's now a week ago, Tapper dropped 32% in total viewers and 46% in the Debo. His show the previous night down 28% from the debut, 48% in the demo, also a decline in his lead-in from Anderson Cooper. Well, lead-in is a big thing because that's the audience you inherit from the previous show. Then you switch to Alex Wagner, who is now... Rachel Maddow's permanent replacement, Tuesdays through Fridays. She has struggled as well, according to this item. Last week was her lowest rated week since launching the show back in August, averaging 1.36 million total viewers and 129,000 viewers in the demo. Hannity, 2.75 million viewers, 210,000 viewers in that 25 to 54 demo. So, Here's why I think this is a little unfair, knowing the business as I do. First of all, it's completely and totally unrealistic to expect any new host, for example, on MSNBC, to come in and be even close to Rachel Maddow's numbers. There's a reason she's paid a zillion dollars. She's been the dominant liberal voice on MSNBC for dozen years or more, of course there's going to be a drop-off. Now, if your show is declining from where you were at a previous point, that's not a good sign. In the case of Jake Tapper, 
he got no promotion. It's not a permanent new show. It's a temporary show. So all the things you would ordinarily would do, rollout and ads and having your new host be a guest guest uh, on other programs, it didn't do. So people may be seeing the show and just thinking he's filling in or whatever. So I think in both instances, it's a little bit unfair to say, well, you know, they're struggling and it's a complete failure. And, you know, Chris Cuomo had that slot for a long time and he built up a loyal following. And then, of course, he got fired and now he's over at News Nation. So I just wanted to provide a little context there. Meanwhile, uh, as the Kanye West meltdown continues, we talked on the podcast yesterday about Adidas saying, see you later, dude, even though it's going to cost us a heck of a lot of money. The CEO of Spotify, I alluded to this yesterday, has announced that his music platform, guy name is Daniel Ek, E-K, will not take any action against Kanye West, despite all of his anti-Semitic outbursts, because none of Kanye's content that is on the platform violates the terms of service. Now, X said, well, his comments are just awful comments, but said there'll be no action by Spotify because it's really just his music and his music doesn't violate our policy. Well, what a cop-out that is. I'm not saying he should or shouldn't kick him off. I am saying his company continues, he told this to Reuters, to make money off Kanye West while professing to be personally offended by these comments. Of course, the music itself doesn't. It's the question of whether or not you want to continue to funnel revenue to Kanye and cash in on the revenue yourself. But there is a way for people who don't want to get Kanye's content to sort of block him. It's like a three-step process or something. So they won't even see, it wouldn't even be served up to them. So individual Spotify users. And, you know, by the way, there are other music services. I don't see them kicking uh, Kanye off either. Let's get down to business here with story number one. During the several weeks when the biggest controversy in the midterm races was not John Fetterman, but Herschel Walker, I think it was pretty well proven that Herschel Walker was not telling the truth about the allegation by the mother of one of his children. Remember, he said, I have no idea who this is. Oh, yeah, yeah, she's been angry at me for a long time. Who said, anonymously, to protect her son's privacy, that Herschel Walker, uh, more than a decade ago, had paid for her abortion. This is before she later got pregnant a couple years later. Uh, had sent her a $700 check, which Walker wasn't able to explain, and also had pressured her to get the abortion, and also um, didn't send the check right away. And she says, no, 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 until you send this check, I'm not doing it. All right, so I think people in South Carolina made the decision. Most Republicans didn't care either because it was a long time ago or they don't think it's relevant or they like his pro-life policy now, although he's significantly softened that, by the way. Um, 
Or, you know, some conservatives just came out and said, look, I don't care. I don't care if it's all true. We have to maintain the power. We have to keep control of the United States Senate for the GOP. But, you know, you know as a reporter, what you always look for is a pattern. Is this only one person whose credibility might or might not be suspect saying this? I mean, I think this woman, because she has, she's one of four women with whom Walker, the one-time Heisman Trophy winner and pro football star, uh, had father children with, uh, she has a certain amount of credibility, but let's say she made the whole thing up, okay? But now a second accuser has come forward. A second woman, represented by liberal attorney Gloria Allred, provided proof, which uh, Allred unveiled at a news conference yesterday, including a hotel room photo, phone message, hotel receipts, love notes signed with the letter H. Okay? So they had, obviously, a sexual relationship. The difference here is that while she is also not using her name, we hear her voice. She made an audio tape in which she talks about what happened. And it's quite emotional. This Jane Doe says, Herschel Walker says he's against women having abortions, but he pressured me to have one. The woman said they had a sexual relationship for for years. She expected him to divorce his wife. She was surprised when she got pregnant. And after speaking to Herschel Walker, he encouraged me to have an abortion and gave me the money to do so. I went to a clinic in Dallas, but I simply couldn't go through with it. I left the clinic in tears. And that's where it might have ended. Except, she says, when I told Herschel what happened, he was upset and said he was going to go back with me to the clinic the next day for me to have the abortion. He then drove me to the clinic the following day and waited for hours in the parking lot until I came out. He then drove me to get medications and supplies as prescribed and then drove me home. I was devastated because I felt I had been pressured into having an abortion. After the abortion, I felt Herschel began distancing himself from me. I fled Dallas within days of the abortion. I didn't go back to even visit for the next 15 years because I was so traumatized by what Herschel put me through. And she adds, she's a registered independent and she voted for Donald Trump in both of the last two elections. So unlike the first woman who clearly is pro-choice, this doesn't sound like the case. And look, it may well be that nobody in South Carolina wants to hear this, but now you have a second woman and you have her voice and you have a detailed story and you have all of this evidence. Now, is it by the same logic that one, it was a long time ago, two, we don't care? Remember, Herschel Walker's never acknowledged this. He's, he's never said, I did it, I was wrong, I wouldn't do the same thing again today. And I've said all along, I think people would have forgiven him if he had done that. But he's not. He's clinging to the denial. What's he going to say now? Or is it going to be the same old, like, you know, he can pay for all the abortions he wants. 
as long as the Republicans hold that seat in South Carolina. Story number two. So one of the things, as long as we're talking about the midterms, that really strikes me is the spin that we are seeing on the disastrous John Fetterman performance in the Pennsylvania Senate debate against Mehmet Oz. Some of these liberal hosts who ordinarily are very vocal when it comes to denouncing Republicans, either, and I watched a lot of TV yesterday, either didn't deal with it at all, wouldn't have a word to say about it, such as Lawrence O'Donnell on MSNBC Tuesday night. Um, Brianna Keeler, she usually denounces Republicans on CNN, had the mildest possible explanation, something about, you know, it's really uh, caused the race to have a certain white-hot intensity, but not criticizing the Fetterman performance. Nicole Wallace on MSNBC. You know, there are two clips. The first one is uh, Fetterman's opening statement where he's pretty coherent and he talks about the elephant in the room and, you know, he got back up and he's going to fight for Pennsylvania. And then there's the second clip, which is the worst moment of the night when he was pressed, as as Oz was, to explain a flip-flop on fracking and he just stumbled and just looked awful. Nicole Wallace. Fetterman only played the first clip, not the really bad moment. And she says... Fetterman now reminding viewers that he's going to stumble once or twice because of a stroke. Stumble once or twice. Did anybody who watched that debate or even clips that debate think that's what's happened? And look, I have enormous sympathy for John Fetterman as a stroke survivor. But the question for voters in Pennsylvania, and you know, Oz didn't have a great debate and I criticized him yesterday and don't need to go into all that right now. But For all of these people to either describe it so mildly or ignore it or or just pivot to attacking Oz or just defer to their guests. Well, I don't have to say about this, but let's bring in this Democrat and see what he thinks or she thinks. That's what happened. And then yesterday afternoon, there was a show on CNN, the 2 p.m. show, that led with not the Fetterman verbal struggles. It led with an attack ad. This was the lead that the Fetterman campaign quickly cut about Oz's answer on abortion. And and it replays his voice again and again. I think abortion should be a decision between women, doctors, and local political officials. And he says again and again, local political officials, local political officials. And then the next hour on MSNBC, that Fetterman attack ad was up near the top as well. So, you know, it's just, it drives me crazy because it's so partisan. And... If it had been a Republican with Nicole Wallace and Lawrence O'Donnell, who was the recovering stroke victim, be saying, ah, you know, this is kind of interesting, or, yeah, let's look at the other side's attack. No, they would be reaming the guy 
as unfit for office. And, you know, it's a game both sides play, as I've talked about before. Hey, let's pause right there. The buzz meter continues right after this. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Janice Dean, Fox News Senior Meteorologist. Be sure to subscribe to the Janice Dean Podcast at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And don't forget to spread the sunshine. All right, number three. Another significant debate in a race much tighter than anybody expected was in New York, where Governor Kathy Hochul faced off with Congressman Lee Zeldin. Now, one of the reasons I'm bringing this up is, you know, from New York, I know the turf. And the fact that we're even talking about a possibly competitive race in the blue, blue state of New York, and the same thing out in Oregon, where there may be an unusual three-way race, the first Republican governor in 40 years, tells you a lot about this election. And that's why when you go through the latest polls and you see, you know, all of these uh, Trump-backed conservatives who the media wrote off and it's a tie or it's a one-point or it's a two-point, even a three-point, you know, if this contest, this midterm contest, does break the Republicans' way, well, in that case, there's going to be a lot of surprises, and it could be that, you know, the GOP picks up three Senate seats in gaining control, and maybe a lot more House seats than might have seen likely even three, four weeks ago. So, the other interesting thing here is the parallels with the Fetterman-Oz debate. So here's, the New York Times does, you know, five takeaways. Here's what it is. Zeldin has for months made crime the central focus of his campaign. And he kept bringing it up, like, no matter what the question was, you know, where do you stand on uh, ice cream? Well, Kathy Hochul is soft on crime. Um, and it works for him, and it's a legitimate issue, especially given, you know, some of the subway crime in New York City. And so he said that uh, Hochul, of course, took over when Andrew Cuomo resigned, uh, was not doing enough to get under control an increase in serious offenses in the state. It turns out that the number of murders has gone down compared to last year, but the number of other very, very serious crimes has gone up. Things are less safe thanks to Kathy Hochul and extreme policies. Well, that word extreme, Oz used against Fetterman again and again and again. It was either extreme or radical. So apparently there's a bit of a playbook. Hochul said, look, I've been trying to stop the flow of illegal guns into the state and said she'd already tightened bail reforms this year. On abortion, Kathy Hochul said, you're the only person standing on the stage whose name right now, not years past, right now is on a bill called Life Begins at Conception. So how does Zeldin come back from that? He says, look, I've pledged that I'm not going to unilaterally change New York's already strict abortion protections. It's already in state law. He said it would be politically unfeasible and that Hochul was being disingenuous by suggesting he would do that because Democrats control the legislature in Albany 
and he'll likely to retain control. Well, you know, if I'm pro-choice, that's not a very reassuring answer because obviously he would like to do it. He's just saying he won't, he can't, it's not feasible. And then we get to Trump. And here the parallel is almost exactly the same as Memonaz. So Hochul goes on the offense and says, Lee Zeldin not only has a close relationship with Donald Trump, but he, as a congressman, voted to overturn the results of the 2020 election hours after the Capitol riot. And the best Zeldin could do is to come back and say, well, the vote was on two states, Pennsylvania and Arizona, and the issue remains today. So he didn't totally back away from it. Okay. Does Lee Zeldin want to see Trump run in 2024? He waved it away. Irrelevant. That's exactly a version of what Dr. Oz did. He said, well, I'll support the Republican nominee. He did not want to say, I support Donald Trump. On the follow-up in Harrisburg, Oz said, oh, yes, I do. When he was pressed on it and he couldn't wiggle out, he said, yes, I do. I will support Donald Trump if he runs for president. In the New York debate, um, Zeldin said he wouldn't give a yes or no. Do you consider Trump a great president? Trump, by the way, lost New York by 23 points in 2020. He wouldn't give a yes or no. But he did say that he was proud. Zeldin said he was proud to have worked closely with the former president uh, on a whole bunch of issues, look, crime, international politics. And Kathy Hochul said, I'll take that as a resounding yes. So you see the game plan on the Republican side is don't tie yourself too closely from, to Trump, even though you did so in the primary. Uh, fudge on abortion. Emphasize crime and inflation. Perfectly legitimate political things to do. The game plan on the Democratic side now is talk about gun control, but don't make, you know, they're all having to play defense on crime now for the first time. Uh, talk about abortion rights uh, and otherwise try to keep the issues, you know, all the legislation Biden has passed, and it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter because it's not breaking through because a lot of the uh, legislation is abstract. So here's an interesting column by Jim Garrity in National Review. Starts out by saying a lot of Democratic candidates and strategists are a lot less smart and shrewd than they think they are because they've been protected and saved by a largely friendly media. Okay. Garrity says, I wonder how often Democratic candidates and strategists interact with people who don't normally vote for them or their clients. The overwhelming majority of Americans don't follow politics, aren't that gung-ho with enthusiasm about either party. It's surprisingly easy for the politically passionate to get trapped in a bubble of like-minded friends, colleagues, and acquaintances. Most Democratic campaigns desperately need to hear from somebody who says things like, abortion isn't a top issue for me this year, or I want a secure border. I don't understand why Kamala Harris says it's secure when everyone can see it's not. I'm really worried about crime, and it seems to be getting worse. I'm not comfortable with all the sexual stuff they're teaching in schools these days. Uh, No, I haven't watched the hearings about January 6th. What happened that day was awful, but I haven't thought about that in a long time. Okay. So, instead, 
Garrity says most Democratic campaigns have been running as if an overwhelming majority of the electorate are members of NARAL, Move On, Sierra Club, Human Rights Campaign, and Every Town for Gun Safety. Yes, motivating your base is important, but at some point you run out of Democrats, particularly in purple districts. And he says, look, people like pollster Stanley Greenberg have been trying to warn Democrats about this for some time. So is James Carville. He's always saying we can't let go of the working class in favor of these elites who, you know, too worried about pronouns. Now, Garrity's fair-minded enough to say Republicans aren't immune to this phenomenon, that the Arizona Republican Secretary of State candidate, Mark Fincham, sounds like a lunatic when he contends Biden couldn't possibly have won his state in 2020 because, quote, I can't find anyone who admit that they voted for Joe Biden. Uh, if he really wants to find people voting for Biden, the state of Arizona has roughly 1.2 million registered Democrats. He can start with them. But mostly, he says, it's Democrats who've ignored and largely conceded that small but decisive slice of voters in the middle, frustrated by high prices, inflation, an insecure border, and rising crime rates. Number four, Peace in the Atlantic by George Packer, a pretty well-known name, about Bob Woodward and the Donald Trump tapes. And he starts off by saying, uh, you know, Woodward has got this audio book out, and uh, the Washington Post published a Woodward essay about the tapes. Uh, Woodward is explaining why he did this. Trump, as I've mentioned, is criticizing him. Woodward says you cannot separate Trump from his voice. Trump's voice magnifies his presence. And there are currently three books on the New York Times nonfiction bestseller list. Woodward's The Trump Tapes is poised to join them. For years, Trump's presidency, writes Packer, swelled the American news media's ratings, subscriptions, and clicks, in some cases doubling or tripling the numbers. When Trump left the White House, these numbers suddenly deflated with dramatic financial effects. Almost two years on, Trump continues to fill publishing catalogs, cable TV airwaves, and the columns of websites, newspapers, and magazines, including this one meeting The Atlantic. Coverage is almost entirely negative, yet it can't help being read as secretly hopeful. The media appear to have no other business plan than to keep pumping the same exhausted hole until the next gusher of grease erupts in the form of a second Trump campaign. And by the way, I've said 10 million times, negative publicity helps Donald Trump because it reminds his supporters how much they hate the media and it allows him to control the news agenda. And, and then here's the Atlantic making the same point. The effect of all the coverage is to bind Trump even tighter to his supporters in shared hatred of the media that despise them. Okay. Trump understands the game he's playing better than the press does. Um, Americans buy the book and read about the Trump tapes. We're appalled by Trump's shamelessness, appalled and also bored because nothing is new and nothing happens. Trump remains where he wants to be the center of attention. And here is his ultimate conclusion. And this reminds me of the Kanye debate, and I'll explain why in a second. Uh, the Atlantic piece says journalists can't cop stop covering Trump. But we do him a big favor, and the public none, by magnifying his presence and analyzing the tone of every utterance, depending on every obscenity for sales and distraction. 
If he runs again, journalists would do better to follow the money that supports him, report on the party that's come to embody him, talk with people who vote for him. And when Trump says nothing new, ignore him. But I don't really think that's feasible. If a former president of the United States, who is clearly going to run again, who clearly would almost definitely win the nomination again, who continues to make the unsubstantiated claims about a stolen election, speaks, unless it's just a complete and total rehash of something he said 75 times, how do you ignore it? How do you anoint yourself as the gatekeeper and say, you know, no no one needs to hear this? Well, when you throw in the business incentives, clicks, ratings, and so forth, a lot of places aren't even trying. Now, on my show on Kanye, I had Richard Fowler, for example, say, the media shouldn't be covering this guy, shouldn't be repeating all the anti-Semitic garbage. It's giving it oxygen. Let's just ignore him. And my comeback to you, to him and to you is, how do you take one of the most famous people on the planet, a billionaire businessman, with all these partnerships, a guy who's in the process of buying Parlor, a guy whose music, fairly or fairly, is beloved by people around the world, and say, you know what, uh, you know this anti-Semitic stuff—it's—it's—it's it's, it's kind of uncomfortable. So we're not—we're not going to cover it because then you're shielding him from the consequences of his actions. The fact that it has been repeatedly covered and that he was challenged by Chris Cuomo and Piers Morgan and others is why he no longer has to deal with Adidas. It's why he his agency dropped him. It's why the Fashion House dropped him, because it made it impossible to ignore. And I would say the same thing about Trump. Playing into his hands, maybe. But unilaterally deciding that nobody needs to hear this, not so much. Hey, let's pause right there. The buzz meter continues right after this. Story number five, Elon Musk goes to Twitter. And of course, Elon being Elon, he didn't just slip in the back door. He posted a video of himself walking in, carrying a bathroom sink made out of porcelain. Also, he can make this joke, entering Twitter headquarters, let that sink in. Uh, So he'd been tweeting about it. He changed his description. Uh, You know, he's got 110 million followers and now calls himself Chief Twit. The guy's funny. You got to give him that. Now, he has until close of business tomorrow to complete the deal with Twitter. Uh, and there's every indication now, since obviously he was invited, that that will go through. Uh, obviously, if you work there and you're reading these reports that he's going to slash the staff from 7,500 to around 2,000, uh, you're pretty bleeping nervous. And if he does go ahead with that, I mean, how does the company even function? I understand, you know, Twitter will be taking on a lot of additional debt under this $44 billion deal. And then there'll be all the renewed debate about uh, who's allowed to stay on and does anybody get kicked off and is Donald Trump coming back and all that. But first, he's got to close the deal. Walking in with the sink, I think pretty good indication that it's moving very rapidly in that direction. Meanwhile, Facebook is having a really... Tough season. Isn't it interesting that these tech giants that a couple of years ago just seemed 
so dominant and such cash machines now having trouble. Listen to this. The beginning of this year, Meta uh, had a market cap. Its total value, according to the stock market, was about $1 trillion. Now, 10 months later, it's worth about $283 billion. So it had been the sixth largest American company. And now it's number 20. And if it slips a little more, it will be out of the top 20. Losing $520 billion. It's mind-boggling. And it just shows you, you know, Zuckerberg spent all his money on creating this metaverse, and that is hurting the bottom line. And also, you know, it's not as popular as it used to be, particularly with younger people who have migrated to TikTok and to Snapchat. And this is a real problem for Mark Zuckerberg. A couple other things before we go. Merrick Garland, DOJ, issuing permanent new rules that bars the agency. This is a very big deal if you're in the journalism racket from using subpoenas or search warrants or certain kinds of court orders to seize information or records from journalists during these leak investigations. And not only was this done under President Trump, where uh, journalists who initially didn't even necessarily know that their phone records or uh, other electronic records or emails had been seized, uh, worked at CNN, Washington Post, New York Times. This was a huge uproar, but also under Barack Obama. There was a huge uproar uh, for the subpoenaing of journalists, uh, including former Fox correspondent James Rosen, including a correspondent for the Associated Press. Uh, Garland saying in a statement, these, rec- these regulations recognize the crucial role that a free and independent press plays in our democracy. They have to have freedom to report and investigate the news, enhanced protection. Look, I'm all for this. Now, obviously, there could be situations in a criminal investigation where a journalist was thought to be complicit or something where this would have to be waived. But by and large, you're not going to see a whole lot of seizing of journalist records. And I think that's a good thing for a free press. Joe Biden had also called the practice simply wrong. Now, one more little note on Kanye. Uh, so, you know, he lo- he blows up the deal with Adidas, and then he shows up, just shows up unannounced at a Skechers corporate office, the big sneaker company, shoe company, in L.A., uninvited. And the security people just, like, escort him out. And <laughs> Skechers puts out a statement saying, we condemn his recent divisive remarks and do not tolerate anti-Semitism in- or any other form of hate speech. So, you know, he's had this Yeezy line of sneakers. Now uh, Adidas has dumped him, and along with a lot of other companies. And I don't think there's a lot of shoe companies lining up or dying to do business with this guy. The d- degree to which he has kind of blown up, not only his image, but... His business life, by doubling and tripling and quadrupling down on the anti-Semitism stuff, it's just head-shaking. You know, at various points, you just say, like, dude, go get some help. This is awful.
But, you know, even, you know, who was it? Uh, Ari Emanuel pointed out yesterday, even if you're mentally ill, it doesn't mean lots of me- people who struggle with mental issues uh, and they don't go around spewing anti-Semitism. One more thing. Donald Trump holding a rally, November 6th, two days before the midterms, in Miami for Marco Rubio. That has just been announced. Guess who was not invited to the aforementioned Florida rally? Ron DeSantis. And there are reports that DeSantis and his people are pretty pissed off about this. uh, Because anything that he does that day, that's the Sunday before Election Day, is going to be completely overshadowed by Trump rallying for Rubio. Uh, one person closer to Santa said he's hi- that Trump is hijacking a crucial day. Uh, first of all, you know, they are likely or possible, I guess I should say, competitors for the presidency in 2024. Trump's not under any obligation to uh, embrace DeSantis. Rubio's in a competitive race. And that's the other thing. DeSantis is going to win easily. There's no way that former Governor Charlie Crist is going to beat him. So this is just, you know, a little shadow boxing, I think, before we see what happens after the midterms. Thanks for spending this time with me. Remember, Apple iTunes is a very good place, along with your Amazon device, to subscribe to this podcast. We will see you tomorrow with more Buzz Media. I'm Charles Payne. Listen to my Unstoppable Prosperity podcast so I can get you making money right now. Whether stocks are hitting new all-time highs or in free-fall mode, opportunities abound. So why are so many potential investors still sitting on the sidelines? In a new season of my podcast, I'm going to get you in the game. After 38 years on Wall Street, I'm ready to impart some lessons and get you invested in the greatest wealth-generating machine in history. Listen anytime, everywhere at foxbusinesspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast.